Hi, Kyle. Lindsay here from Half Moon Bay, California. Would love to add to uh, the time capsule of the pandemic of 2020 that you asked for uh, in your newsletter here. How am I feeling? More grounded and centered than ever. Um, I actually feel like I'm thriving. Uh, that sounds really, really weird, but without having my work that I wasn't happy going to before um, as an option now, I'm now doing the things that truly light me up. Uh, I'm getting creative with how I'm going to make income and also turning back to the land more than ever, taking up a new hobby just so I can be more self-reliant, uh, which is free diving and going out and get my own food. But with that, what I'm noticing with people too, um, we're interacting more. We may be separate and it's kind of like a weird interaction as how uh, I wish, I hope people are with dogs where you kind of gauge how is the person going to receive you if they seem, you know, happy to speak with you as well. You do this weird like little interaction now, but uh, yeah, people are genuinely asking, how are you? And waiting to hear your response, not just in passing. I really appreciate that. Um, also, my neighborhood is just, people are having conversation. Cars are stopping in the middle of the streets. Kids are riding their bikes. People are being more neighborly. Um, I love Half Moon Bay for that reason. We are getting a little disgruntled over here. A lot of people coming from all over the place, even though we're supposed to be on lockdown. They want to come see the beautiful beaches. I get it, but this is my backyard, so it is a little angering because uh, tourists tend to bring trash. And I'm seeing this all as a big, big request from Mama Nature um, asking us to pause so she can heal herself a little bit. I hope change comes from this. I'm praying for that because, you know, this is a great opportunity to create a new world, you know, a world that we all really feel happy in. Um, at least that's what I'm trying to do. So I really appreciate what you're doing here. Always appreciated your journalism, props. And uh, like I said before, uh, stay gonzo, man. I appreciate you. Hey, Kyle. Interesting times. Uh, Adam here. Last time I spoke to you, I was walking the dog as I was sanding a hand plane. Um, sitting here, about to head off to work as a high school teacher, surrounded by kids that couldn't social distance if their life depended on it. The worrying thing is that lots of other people's lives could depend on it. Um, trying to stay positive at the moment, you might hear in the background, we've been investing in a little bit of classical radio because just about everywhere else you turn in the media, you're bombarded with stuff that makes you stressed after listening to the first <clears throat> 20 minutes of your last podcast about reducing stress just thought it might be a nice thing for people to consider if they've never considered it before. Find your local radio, ours is ABC. We have a listen app. We go to the classical FM uh, option, ABC2 Classic FM. You just get nice, relaxing tunes. Some of them aren't the best, but it's a hell of a lot easier on the grey matter and the hormones than listening to constant updates about why the government thinks that teachers should be exposed to infection consistently. 
and how the economy needs to keep running and the state of the world and the amount of deaths, etc. So look after the people around you, give them a call, tell them that you love them. Find your dog, get some love from them, give them a bit of a hug and keep smiling wherever possible. Lots of love to you, big fella. I was super moved by your intro the other day. This has gone way too long, but keep smiling. Adam and Lindsay, thank you both for sending those voice memos in. Much gratitude to you both. I just had a great experience that I will share with you both um, and everyone listening. I guess I'm not just talking to Adam and Lindsay. Sometimes it feels like I am just talking to the person who sent the voice memo, but then I'm like, oh, there's more of you. Um, I got a text from Jim Fadiman. Uh, he is the author of The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. He's been on this show before. Um, I actually did a three-person podcast with Jim and Chris a while back, if anyone wants to check it out. He's an older gentleman. Uh, I believe he's in his mid-80s, and he has a little house here in Santa Cruz about 10 blocks away from me, and he ran out of food and asked if I might be able to bring him over some dinner, and I did. I brought him some frozen pizzas and curry, and I was on my way over there driving, and I was overwhelmed with this feeling of how fucking lucky am I to be able to be useful to someone right now? I'm of use. That is such a good feeling. And it became so clear to me that it's not, um, it's not difficulty that humans fear most. It's the feeling of being unnecessary. Is That's what's excruciating to us. So I hope that you all know what I'm talking about because there are people around you who you can be of use to. Um, Maybe it's the person in the mirror um, that you need to keep an eye on most right now um, and make good decisions for, whether that's daily exercise, meditation, checking in on yourself, checking in on loved ones. Um, And I don't say that because it's literally important to keep the fascia of humanity together. Um, I say that because it's a a real spiritual opportunity um, and I think can clarify a lot of the unknowns around this situation. There are so many unknowns, but what we know is how to be of use. Um, And that's a question that we can all ask ourselves when we wake up in the morning. What is the best use of me? And all of a sudden the path becomes very clear. One thing about this this past week, um, week or so in quarantine, is that it's, it's allowed me to reflect on my life and what I value and kind of take inventory of all these experiences. Um, and one of the top experiences in my life for sure is meeting Chris Ryan. Um, he is a good friend of mine. He is a mentor to me and, uh, he's someone who I almost didn't send an email to about 
four or five years ago now. Um, I, I respected him a ton before I uh, knew him. I had heard him on the Joe Rogan podcast and, um, I reached out to him because I wanted to meet him and actually wanted to be on his podcast. And I almost didn't send this email because um, it was uncomfortable and weird and felt self-promotional, but I did. And my life has been profoundly enhanced by um, that connection that I have with him. Um, and for many of you who, who know, for those of you who don't, we did the Motherfucker Awards together two years in a row. And I was thinking about how many of those real life experiences, like, whoa, if I died tomorrow, what would I look back on and think, fuck yeah, I'm happy I did that. And and many of those were experiences that I almost didn't do um, because they felt uncomfortable. I didn't necessarily feel good enough, quote unquote, at the time, um, but I went ahead with it anyway. I'm reading a book right now called When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. She's a Buddhist. And she said once a friend told her, you know, Pema, what I love about you is that you're a total coward, but you go ahead with it anyway. I loved that because that's my experience most of the time is honestly feeling like a coward. Um, but And sometimes I do make the cowardly choice. But other times, I go ahead with it anyway. And holy shit, what can come from going ahead with it anyway? So much beauty. For those of you who know nothing about Christopher Ryan, um, he is an author. He is the best-selling author of Sex at Dawn. And his latest book, Civilized to Death, just hit the bookshelves. And oh boy, what a timely book. Um, I'm going to read you the very beginning of it because... Dr. Ryan, um, as goofy as he may look, he is one of those prophetic thinkers who calls things out uh, before they happen. I'm just going to read the the beginning of his book because I, I think that this is the book that everyone should be reading right now in times like these. Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress. Most of us have a sense that something's not right. Balmy winter days, catastrophic fires and floods, a world at constant war, political systems in disarray. Some misinformation is repeated so often it acquires the sheen of obvious truth. Civilization is humankind's greatest accomplishment. Progress is undeniable. You're lucky to be alive here and now. Well, maybe we are and maybe we aren't. In Civilized to Death, Christopher Ryan counters the idea that all progress is inherently good, arguing that the progress defining of our age is analogous to an advancing disease. Prehistoric life, of course, was not without serious threats and disadvantages. Many babies died in infancy. A, bro a broken bone, infected wound, snake bite, or difficult pregnancy could be disastrous. But ultimately, Ryan asks, were these pre-civilized dangers really much worse than modern scour scourges, such as car accidents, social isolation, worsening natural disasters, and rising deaths by cancer, suicide, and cardiovascular disease? The lies of our foraging forebears, it turns out, were far, far from nasty, brutish, and short, despite what we've been led to believe. 
On the contrary, today's enlightened societies have much to learn from our primitive ancestors. At a time when our health, our society, and our planet all feel increasingly imperiled, an accurate understanding of our species' true nature is vital to a clear sense of the ultimate value of civilization and its costs. In Civilized to Death, Ryan argues that we should look back to the past to navigate our way to a better future. God damn, Chris Ryan, you know what you're talking about. Um, I love chatting with Chris um, because we just banter about shit. And we recorded this before um, I really knew that coronavirus was going to be a thing. Um, So we bantered a lot about politics. And um, one thing I I dig about talking with Chris is that he really... um, helps me clarify my thinking. I throw an idea out there and then he'll kind of chip away at it and help me clean it up, almost like an editor. I work to be a a clearer thinker around Chris, and I'm forever grateful for that. I'm also forever grateful to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these podcasts. Santa Cruz Medicinals has been with us since the beginning. They make potent CBD products. Here's the thing about CBD. You need a lot of it for to do anything. And Santa Cruz Medicinals puts a potent batch in everything they they make. I have a CBD tincture that I use. Um, I put a few drops of it in my mouth before I go to bed, and it helps me sleep very, very deeply, even in these uncertain times. Head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10 to get 10% off your order. And if you guys want to listen to more of Christopher Ryan, he's been on this podcast a hundred times, so you can go back through the archives. And if you want to send me a voice memo, email to info at kyle.surf. Stay safe, stay healthy, get lots of sleep, and please welcome to the show, Christopher Ryan. I'm going to start this one off with a passage from Matt Taibbi's new book, Hate, Inc. Uh, and in, there's a chapter called The Ten Rules of Hate. Rule number one, there are only two ideas. There are only two baskets of, allow- of allowable opinion, Republican and Democrat, liberal and conservative, left or right. This is drilled into us at a young age. By the time we hit college, most of us, roughly speaking, will have chosen the political identity we stick with for the rest of our lives. It's the Bullerian version of politics, pure binary thought, blue, red, true, false, zero or one. Open a New York Times op-ed page if you want to see the contours. The spectrum of ideas is narrow. There's no Paul Goodman preaching revolutionary pacifism. There's no Thoreau denouncing the spiritual bankruptcy of our work-centric lives, urging us to reconnect with nature. There are no Twains telling us to telling us to lodge all power in one party and keep it there is to ensure bad government. There are no Bierces or Swifts helping us laugh at the rich and the powerful and the pompous. What does that make you think of? Um, what's it made me think of? I, I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I fit into that scenario that he paints. Uh, um, you know, I've always felt to the left of the Democratic Party. If we're even, 
you know, to talk in terms of left and right is to buy into the binary, which I guess is what he's calling out there. But um, I agree with him that American political discourse is extremely narrow and defined by the corporate interests who basically want you to vote between corporate light and corporate a little less light, you know, or neither one is light, corporate yeah. heavy or corporate less heavy, I guess, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. But uh, yeah, I think that's a, a major problem in this country that people think they have a choice, but when the choice is determined by the pre-existing political system, it's not much of a choice, really. I, go for it. You know, I, I always think American politics reminds me of the Harlem Globetrotters. I don't know if you remember who they were or if they still Remind exist. Me. They're this like basketball team. I, they might still exist. I don't know. But they're a basketball team. Um, There's more like a circus act. And right. They, they would do all these tricks and uh, they were amazing. You know, they some of them were former NBA players and they would do all this crazy stuff with the ball and you almost like magic tricks and and so they had this other team the washington either generals or nationals i forget I think it was the nationals right and their job was just to pretend to play against these experts yeah and, and always lose and always lose yeah and that was you know it's like a bullfight the bull's not supposed to ever win right. right you know i mean there's supposed to be the the uh some simulacrum simulacrum i think is the word uh, something that looks like competition, but that's just to make it fun. Yeah, you know the marketing principle of giving someone a choice. You yeah, know, you go right. into the car dealership and they say, "Oh, well, you're looking for a Subaru. Would you like the blue one or the white one?" Right. And all of a sudden, you start thinking that you have a choice. Yeah, or the thing where they add the third option that's much more expensive, and right. then everyone goes for the formerly top option because yeah. they think they're choosing the middle path now. E even though the, the top one is just outrageously expensive. Right. I think that's what's happened in American politics and you know, since the 80s, since Reagan, is it's veered so far to the right that Democrats, most Democrats now, are what would have been considered Republicans. They would have been considered conservatives, although that word's lost its meaning. Um, in the 70s and 80s, right? Like Nixon proposed uh, universal basic income. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. You know, so a lot of these ideas, I mean, we even saw it recently with uh, National Health, uh, you know, Romney Care. Mitt Romney proposed that when he was, what, governor of Massachusetts, I think. He proposed a single-payer health care system. And then by the time he was running for president, everything had veered so far to the right that that was now considered a radical left-wing idea. Right, and you have a lot of media that will set up this binary, like Hannity and Colmes, right? Like Hannity is this strong-jawed Republican and Colmes was the kind of weak-wilted compromiser. Right. So it shifts gradually over towards towards the right, which which the reason for that, I think, is to shift towards deregulation right. so that corporate interests can be furthered. Right. Who owns the TV channels? Who owns the newspapers? Yeah. You know, come on. You know, one thing that I learned uh, just from doing all the research for, for the MOFAs and like trying to understand like what is happening right now pointed me back to this time in the 60s. You mentioned Nixon. I didn't know that Nixon was the one who created the EPA uh, passed the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Endangered Species Act. Right. And a lot of this, it, there was this like there were a few events that led up to this. Um, one was there was a huge oil spill in Santa Barbara. Still to this day, it's considered the largest oil spill in California waters. 
believe it was 1963, got national press. Right after that, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, came out. Have you heard of that book? Sure, I've read it. Right. So Silent Spring talks all about DDT and how it was softening the shells of the condor eggs. And it galvanized this movement to, to create the first Earth Day in 1970. And then you see this series of acts that, that Nixon put in, like creating the EPA. And then in the 70s, um, Chomsky talks about this. There's a really good documentary called Requiem for an American Dream, where he kind of timelines this out. The 70s was when lobbying groups really got organized because in the 60s there was this intense period of democratization. And all of a sudden they start figuring out clever ways to deregulate. Um, people don't know there were no financial crises you know, in the 50s or 60s because there was more regulation. Then you get into the 70s and the 80s was when we had the savings and loan crisis through Reagan. But that was when um, this shift really happened towards lobbying groups, towards corporate interests. And Chomsky talks about that in the, doc in the documentary. He says he doesn't, didn't expect the backlash of the 60s movement to be so strong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess you could see it as a backlash or you could see it as just an inexorable tide coming in, you know, as corporate power increases, power continues to be concentrated in the hands of corporations and the, you know, 1% <clears throat> they're, you know, local newspapers are gone out of business all through the 70s and the 80s. So you're getting these larger regional media companies. You know, what are they going to do? They're going to start fighting against anything that stands in the way of their expansion. So you have uh, monopoly, anti-monopoly regulations in media that start falling apart. It used to be you couldn't own a newspaper and a TV station in the same market. Now that's gone. Really? Oh, yeah. In fact, when... I don't, I don't have all the numbers for this stuff, but when uh, television first started, uh, there was this commission set up, I guess this must have been the 40s or maybe 50s, and they said, well, okay, television, television's going to be um, sent out over the airwaves, and these frequencies belong to the people, right? Nobody owns electronic frequencies. So if media companies are going to use these frequencies to make money, there needs to be something in it for the average person. So what we're going to do is the agreement was that each television network, at that point there were three, ABC, NBC, CBS, that's all there was, each of them are going to have, I think it was an hour of programming per day that was not for profit, was not, there was no consideration given to making money. This was just going to be to inform the public, to have an informed, educated public, totally objective, no corporate interest, no government interest, totally independent. That was when the marketing teams and the editorial teams were in separate offices. Right, right. And that was sacrosanct. That was, um, you know, that was a principle of journalism. And now, come on, it's gone. It's just eroded. And, you know, we've allowed it to be eroded. But the problem is that, who was it? I think you told me some environmentalist said to you, um, when we win, when, when we win, it's temporary. When they win, it's forever. David Brower. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the way it works with everything, you know. Like, 
we win to keep uh, corporate interests separate from objective journalism. Okay, well, but they're going to come back next year and next year and next year, and they're just going to keep knocking at that door till it falls off its hinges. Well, depending on the, the incentive structure that you set up. So right now, the incentives are so bad to further corporate interests because they're the sponsors. You know, th- the story will lead you down this road that, you know, they've figured out that you can get more eyeballs if you make someone outraged. But it's to get people outraged so that inevitably they're going to buy a product. Right. Right. But if you switch the incentive structure like um, to Netflix or something like that. A lot of the best content out there is on Netflix and HBO because it's a subscriber-based model. They're not subservient to kind of corporate overlords. So I hope hope that a subscription-based model and journalism will look more like that in the future and less like the Facebook model. Well, okay, let me push back on that a sure. little bit. Instead of saying, you know, we set up an incentive structure, which I agree with you, Netflix, a subscription model is different from a commercial-based uh, model. Still, I feel like there's something inherent in just sort of basic reality that sets up certain incentive structures. So let's take Netflix. What They're still corporate overlords, right? They have investors. I think Netflix is a public company. Um, so they've got shareholders. They need to increase profit. How do they increase profit? Well, they need viewers, right? So they don't sell commercial time necessarily. Not yet. They might someday once they get enough subscribers. Um, but they need to have eyeballs. So how do they do that? Well, what draws eyeballs? Controversy, right? So it's the same underlying principles that um, motivate the commercial networks are going to motivate a Netflix or an HBO because they need to attract attention. If it bleeds, it leads, right? People are attracted to controversy and conflict. And Game of Thrones is not a fucking documentary, right? It's not educating. That's what HBO, I think. Yeah, that's HBO. But is there anything wrong with conflict inherently? That's just that's just drawing us into a story. I no, think the problem is where Inc., it's... T- right? That's where right. we started. Yeah. He's saying that the media thrives on conflict even when they're creating the conflict because it draws eyeballs right and i'm saying it's the same drawing eyeballs to a c-span or not you know, that's a bad <laughs> yeah. example god you're old trying to think of a news network <laughs> We're just drawing eyeballs. to fox uh, fox news as opposed to to netflix the same shit's gonna draw eyeballs conflict screaming yeah, uh, but the difference news. but the difference is that Netflix or HBO would be more willing to call out a Pfizer Pharmaceutical because they're not one of their advertisers. They're more likely to allow that documentary to be aired, which is why you get some of the best content on Maybe, those. but I'd like to see who's on the board of directors of HBO, who's on the board of directors of Netflix. Sounds like a conspiracy theory, Dr. Who, Ryan. Yeah, well, what I'm saying is that I think that, you know, water runs downhill, not because we've set up uh, channels necessarily to channel it downhill. It just does. I think money concentrates. It just does. People in positions of power hang out together and look after each other. They do deals on the golf course. It's not, the, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's just the way things are. I've had that insight of like rich and powerful people hanging out together when I noticed 
how after I started hunting, a lot of friends who were fellow hunters would give me meat and I would give them meat. And there was right. this little incestuous circle of like trading. Oh, you want some deer meat? You want right. some pig meat? I'm like, oh, they do that with billions of dollars. Right. Th- this whole thing with Hunter Biden, right? Oh, it's a big, what's going on? Do you know about this? No. Oh, this, this is like sort of what underlies the whole Trump impeachment thing that um, Joe Biden's son got this job for uh, working for a Ukrainian energy company. I apologize to people who know about this. You've heard a million times. It's been in the news for months. Kyle lives in a cave, ladies Sorry, and gentlemen. Uh, anyway, he had this job working for this energy company in the Ukraine, getting paid $50,000 a month. The guy knows nothing about energy, doesn't speak Ukrainian or Russian. Why is he on the board of directors of this company? Because his dad's Joe Biden, right? Obviously. That's six hundred grand a year for a no-show job. You're just getting paid. The only reason you're getting paid is that someday if somebody needs to send a message to Joe, we've got a guy who can talk to we've Joe. We've got a direct line. That's how it works, right? right? And so they're saying the defense is there's nothing illegal about it. Well, that's that makes it worse. Right? There is nothing illegal about it. You're right. There's nothing illegal about a company giving somebody half a million dollars for no no reason. Oh, he's a consultant. Yeah. Okay. We know what's really going on. What's really going on is you're buying access, which should be fucking illegal, but isn't. So the whole what I'm saying is the whole fucking thing is corrupt. It not even necessarily illegal. It's it's corrupt because that's the way these things, these structures come together, you know? Right, because we've uh, amalgamated all of these separate institutions so that they're kind of working for each other rather than maintaining separate. Yeah, separateness. the only thing I would disagree with in your formulation is the use of we. I don't think we've done anything. I think they've done it. Mm. The The structures themselves. I, I see these structures arising like crystal. You know, you put a certain amount of salt into water and you heat it to a certain temperature, crystals start to form. Things just happen. They emerge out of these conditions. Nobody's making those crystals form, right? The conditions create that. And so that's that's what I'm trying to get at here, that I, I feel like the emergent properties... It's not one evil person. It's not a no. conspiracy. It's not even 20 evil people who meet at Davos or something. That's just the way it is. You know, it's like you and your buddies sharing meat. Very... Sounds very gay, actually. <laughs> Nothing against that, but... Uh, we all share meat. Yeah. Stroke each other. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's... I, I, I agree with you. I think that regulation can help with that. Um, which is what we've seen in the past when you have, you know, in the 60s, there was more regulation, there were more taxes on the wealthy. Since then, it's shifted to more taxes on the middle class and intense deregulation, which just creates more concentration of power. Right. And and one, it's a runaway train. So you're right. There was that conflict between government and corporate power. And there was a balance there that kept them sort of, you know, at arm's length. But somewhere, I would argue, the election of Ronald Reagan, the corporate power got the upper hand, and it's basically had a chokehold on governmental power, draining government. Um, you know, 
when you're electing politicians who are running on the platform of government is evil, there's something really wrong there, right? Obviously, their whole their openly stated agenda is we are going to I forget who it was. Government's not the problem, or go, what? What is like government? Government, government is not doesn't the, solve the problem. problem. Government, government is, is the problem. problem. Reagan, Reagan said that. Yeah. And one of Reagan's advisors said, "I want to make government so small you can put it in the bathtub and drown it." Right, and that's what they're trying to do. So it's essentially a libertarian argument that government just gets in the way. Government has no positive role to play, except in you know maybe in the military. But let us do things. You know, business will take care of itself, right? And everyone will you know we'll work things out. We it, don't need the future is going to be so profitable without regulation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that government should be uh, a mechanism that enacts the values of the people. But who believes that that's happening now? Well, not in this country. But see, there's the question. What are the people? What are the values of the people? In the United States, there's no clear sense of what the people believe or who the people are. And I think that's what a lot of the dispute is right now in, in America is what, what's an American person look like? What color are they? What religion are they? What do they believe in? Right? It used to be in the 50s, even though... Um, you know, there were obviously minorities, they were ignored. So it was like an American is a white, you know, middle class guy, works in the factory, has two kids. Is Mr. Sandman, right. bring me a jean. <laughs> so I'm not saying that that's better. Yeah. And I'm not saying that minorities shouldn't be represented. In, Chris Ryan banging a cat at age 13. That was what that America, America looks like. Age Inside 11, joke for I everyone think. who knows. <laughs> For anyone who's been following the podcast world for a while, Google, you know what is it? A nine, nine and, and a half lives. lives with Christopher Ryan. <laughs> Anywho, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but in Europe, like in Spain, it, there's a much more cohesive sense of what Spanish people believe. That's what I was getting at. There's a community. There's more of a unified sense of okay, we're Spanish. This is what we eat. This is what we believe. This is what we do on the weekend. It's much more. Um, identifiable cohesive, yeah. and cohesive. Do you yeah. think that's better, though? Well, I think it's better in the sense that what you said earlier, that government should be protecting and enacting the values of the people. I think in Spain, it's much easier to identify what those values are. And so if the government is not in, is not congruent with those values, it's easier for people to see that. Right. Whereas in the U.S., like, what are the values of the people, right? Do we have a community? Do we? There's no sense of, like, we need to take care of our brother. Because, I don't know, like, oh, all those black people are taking the welfare money. All those Chinese people are taking the, the best spots in Ivy League schools, right? All those immigrants are taking the, the good farm jobs or whatever. You know, like, we're, every, you can point at other people and say, well, they're not really American. Their interests shouldn't be protected. Mine are. And so there's this fragmentation in American society. Yeah, throwaway people. It, it makes it really hard to hold the government to account because, like, there's no dominating central identity of what America believes. Right. And even and today, now more than ever, these groups are atomized within their little echo chambers and they can be very loud and yeah. make it seem like they are the majority. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, an interesting story that I learned about this year was the history of um, prison in the U.S. This is when I interviewed uh, Jody Armour, who's mm. a presenter at the Motherfucker Awards, and he gave uh, an award in the 
spirit category for outstanding efforts to break the human spirit yeah. uh, to geo group. And I always thought initially that, okay, this it's corporate interests that are pushing the, how do, how do I set this story up? I, I'll, I'll say the framework of the story is it, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg question of like, how did prison, how did the prison population in America explode from 300,000 in the eighties to now 2.2 million people in America are behind bars. So that was the question that I asked Jody. And he said, and he ran me through this story of how in the eighties, the Republicans took the tough on crime. Um, they took that issue away from the Democrats. And uh, it was, you might remember the story it was really well known the famous Willie Horton story sure, of, yeah. so this is George H.W. Bush. Bush. Yeah. Uh, Willie Horton was a <clears throat> black man who was out on work furlough and he rapes this white woman uh, and the story gets national media attention and George H.W. Bush uses this as his tough on crime, too tough on crime you know, rhetoric. Like, well, this is, look at what these weak Democrats are doing. So he was responding to the fear of the American people you know, fear of, of dangerous black people. Um, and the Republicans were walking all over Democrats for years until Bill Clinton took that issue back. You know, so then Bill Clinton enacts three strikes um, and mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenses, the whole war on drugs. And the way that Jody set it up was like the, the Democrats were responding to just getting their asses kicked again and again. And the Republicans were responding to the fear of the American people. So the question is, like, were they just responding to this fear that that citizens had to lock all the people up? Or was it that this was a narrative that was pushed onto the, the people so that we could expand the prison population? Well, was, or... Or another option would be, is it a narrative that's pushed onto the American people because it gets them to come out and vote for you? Right. Right, which I think is, to, from my perspective, probably the most likely. And it gets back to what we said earlier, that danger, conflict, blood attracts attention. And so if you're trying to motivate people to pay attention to you, if you can scare them, that's a really good way to do it, right? Goebbels had there's this famous quote from Goebbels, who was Hitler's information minister or propaganda minister, um, where he said it's easy to start a war. You just scare the people and you know convince them that some other people are coming to hurt them and take you know take away their their stuff or hurt their children or their wives or something. Once you do that, once you get them scared, they'll do whatever you want, right? Because you just tell them you need to protect yourself and here's what you need to do to protect yourself. So I think keeping people afraid is a really useful political tool. It's also a useful advertising tool. It's, you know, whatever. It's for media mind manipulation. Yeah. And America, you know, people don't understand this if they haven't traveled much. America presents itself as this tough, you know, USA, we're number one, big trucks and big dicks and big guns and we're the fucking toughest this is the most scaredy cat, pussyfied country on earth. You know, people here are running scared. They're afraid of getting sick. And I'm not saying these fears are all baseless, 
but you're afraid of getting sick, you're afraid of losing your job, you got no job security, you got no social safety net, you got nothing, you're afraid, we're afraid of black people, we're afraid the immigrants are taking our jobs, we're afraid of fucking aliens or ever. <laughs> coronavirus is coming. The fucking aliens with coronavirus. They're everywhere. Perhaps Blue Ribbon virus, it's everywhere. <laughs> Shit, you what are we gonna do? What can you drink? Yeah, but, but do these, so just to finish the point about the prison thing, like yeah. Jody wasn't totally hopeless because he said, you look now, it's been 30 years since we've had this crime system that's been set up on retribution and retaliation and revenge. And now people are seeing just how badly that model worked. So you see now politicians running on on this platform of soft on crime. You see like Tulsi Gabbard calling out Kamala Harris in that debate, like, cut her off at the knees, you know, talking about how she was this tough on crime prosecutor that was sending all these people to jail. Like, does it just take him out a, a certain amount of time for people to come around on an issue to see that revenge doesn't get you the best solution? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I agree that <laughs> I'm searching for the optimist. I mean, I don't Chris. see how I'm Tulsi kidding. Gabbard's doing real well right now. You know, no, she's but the idea disappeared. The idea was it not to it wasn't that Tulsi's so great or or anything. It was that she pointed out Kamala Harris's history as being a tough on crime prosecutor, which hurts her with the black community. I think that was what she was doing. Because she was trying to come in as the next, the female Obama. And it's really hard to motivate the black community when you have a history of putting black people in prison, you know. So I think that that was the point there. I think, you know, here's another angle that we haven't talked about. I don't know if you and Jody got into this, but <clears throat> there's very interesting data showing that there was in the 80s, 70s and 80s, crime did go up. Uh, so who commits most of the crimes? It's young men, right? Normally young men from uh, poorer backgrounds, at least the crimes that are going to get you caught and in trouble, right? We're not talking about white-collar crimes or white kids in rich neighborhoods, drug crimes, right, that I was guilty of, I'm sure, allegedly. Um, but the cops aren't coming to Fairfield looking Bestiality for... Bestiality crimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, last <laughs> reference. I Continue. I did not have sexual relations <laughs> with that cat. All right. I just want to go on the record. Um, but the point is, uh, the, this data really interesting, showing how the crime um, statistics, how the crime wave sort of went up and then peaked and then started coming down. And you could say, oh, it started coming down because Reagan and those assholes were throwing more people into prison, taking them off the streets and all that. But what this paper argues is that this follows the trajectory of having taken lead out of gasoline in the U.S. Whoa. And all that lead in the air damaged fetuses. And so you look at the kids who were born when before they took the lead out of the gasoline, they have lower impulse control. They have more uh, impulses toward aggression. They they don't think things through. They're not they they have brain damage because of the lead in the paint. The lead in the paint, and when they seventeen years after they took the lead out of the paint, the crime wave starts going down because those kids now are getting older. They're either in trouble and in jail, or they're outgrowing those tendencies. 
I don't remember who the author of the paper is. Holy but shit. I want to check that it's out. It's quite well known. Yeah. Well, it's such a good example of issues being intersectional. An environmental right. issue is never just an environmental issue. It's always, always economic. It's always economic yeah. and social. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so who knows if these policies have anything to do with the fluctuation in crime. It may just be a... Um, uh, what's the word for, you know, po- human populations, you know, how many young people there are. And, mm. um, Do you, were you the one telling me about the studies of sexual repression and violence in cultures? Yeah. Uh, James th- Prescott. What's that one? So he looked at um, uh, a few different factors. I, I wrote about this in Sex at Dawn. Um, what's that book? Yeah. It's this, I don't know, some book somebody wrote. Uh, but he looked at um, violence in societies as it correlated to how much mother-infant contact there was and how much repression of teenage sexual expression there was. Teenage, specifically. Right. So as kids become more sexually curious, does the society say, oh, that's cool, whatever, uh, or does the society say, how dare you? Don't touch yourself. Don't look at her. Don't look at her. Um, So in societies that have heightened levels of, um, by the way, the, the teenage sexual repression and the mother-infant contact. physical contact, are, they run together. So in societies that have more breastfeeding, longer breastfeeding, they're almost always societies that have more relaxed attitude toward sexual expression wow. and kids. And vice versa. And don't infants' eyesight only go a very short distance that's about the distance of the breast to the mother's eye? Hmm. Do you know about this? Yeah, well, I know infants can't really focus on anything for a while. And so when you think they're looking at you, they're actually just looking at some Neither can millennials. (laughs) (laughs) Must have been that eye contact. Yeah, exactly. yeah, so so what he found, I think he looked at uh, he looked at all the societies in the anthropological database that had these different factors measured. I think there were maybe 22, 24, something like that. And all but one of them lined up exactly as you'd expect. So uh, lower rates of mother-infant contact and um, a less tolerant attitude toward teenage sexual experimentation, much higher rates of violence, both within the society and with other societies. So more warlike and also more violent within the society. So yeah, chicken egg, you know, do you are, do we discourage breastfeeding in America in order to create warriors? Right? No. Come on. You know, these, I think it's like I said earlier, I think there are emergent properties. I think that when you have a society that's expansionist and warlike, generally, it's not going to be a sexually tolerant society. It's not going to be a society in which mothers are encouraged to hold their sons, you know, breastfeed their sons till they're three or four years old, which is the natural human sort of pattern. You create frustration. Look at what we do to kids in this society, infants. And I'm, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not a parent. I, I'm in no position to judge anyone. But what do we do with kids? We, First of all, a lot of them are circumcised for no reason. So you just cut 
and you know the piece of their dick off that's pretty fucking barbaric and crazy we put them in a room a dark room to sleep alone right any infant primate that's left alone overnight is going to be eaten it's going to be dead by morning so there's a reason those kids scream when you leave them alone in a room at night and what do we tell parents oh let them cry it out they'll learn let them cry it out yeah, let them experience existential <laughs> fucking terror, right? I want to go back in that safe, warm place, please. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of people are we I don't care how creating? many stars you put on my ceiling. I want to go back in the warm place. Yeah. Is that a snake? No, you can't sleep with us. You can't be in bed with your the two adults that are going to protect you. No, you got to sleep alone in a dark room. And then what? Oh, eat. I'm not hungry. Eat anyway. Ignore your body. Oh, go to sleep. I'm not tired. Go to sleep anyway. Ignore your fucking body. What kind of people are we creating? Go sit in this room and listen to this old person drone on and on. But I want to get up and play. No, sit down. I want to talk to my friends. Shut up. No talking. No talking. I love routine, dude. I think it's so important for kids to have a little bit of routine and regimen. You see parents that don't give their kids regimen. They're just like, oh, are you hungry? Not hungry anymore? Two-year-olds run the house. I'm not talking about being a pushover. I'm talking about not teaching kids Are we gonna to ignore raise their kids bodies. Who can't take a bullet wound? Is that I, what we want in this country? A kick in the ass. <laughs> I'm all in favor of kicking them. I just uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, you're not going to publish this, are you? No, of course not. No. Never. Can we take that out? Yeah. <laughs> We're it's live, live, bitch. bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I think that it's it's good to you know we talk about these big problems, a lot of big problems. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back with a couple solutions. Oh, you're you so young and innocent and sweet. It's great. Well, it's great. the great Lawrence Lessig, one of our presenters, uh, has recently introduced a voucher system. You know about this? Seattle yeah. has a six-to-one voucher system now. So because since Citizens United, this is kind of tackling the insidious relationship between corporations and government and lobbying groups. He says you know, we could try and cancel Citizens United, which isn't going to happen. Or we can leverage the vote of the people, hmm. which Seattle implemented. So they get a six to one voucher. Um, or no, it's not a six to one voucher. It's a hundred dollar voucher. Every citizen will get a hundred dollars that they can donate to any candidate oh, yeah. that they want. Andrew Yang proposed that on a national scale. It's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. It's a good idea, except you're going to have to constantly revisit it, you know, so that that hundred to one actually uh, can compete with the money from the Koch brothers. And apparently they had a big success with Amazon trying to pass some law in Seattle. Sorry, I don't know the specifics of it, but it was the result of this voucher system that they implemented. The group's called Citizens United. Uh, No, no, not Citizens, Equal Citizens. Okay. Go check out Citizens United. There's a great organization called ALEC. They're uh, doing the wonderful work. Support. Wonderful work. Yeah, yeah, I thought, I mean, you want to get hopeful. Andrew Yang made me feel hopeful. You don't really follow this No, I do. Shit, I do. I just have been out. Of, you, you're basing me off one story, so well, I, I don't know, know, Hunter. I don't know what you no, know. No, I'm in. I'm in. Okay. All right. Sort of. Uh yeah, I mean, he just dropped out, but I thought he was great. I mean, the waves have been bad, so I've been really in. Lately. Oh, okay. Yeah, as soon as attention. this ball comes up, I'm right. back on Surfline. Right. So he was hopeful about this voucher system. Well, he did. He was, he was, he was into the, and also universal basic income. Yeah, he wanted to give every adult in America a thousand bucks a month, no strings attached, 
which would undercut a lot of the social services, but better because you've got all this overhead now in all these different programs. They compete with each other. It's really difficult to figure out who qualifies for what. Um, I thought that was really hopeful that he actually got on the debate stage and had a chance to make these arguments and made them really well. I don't know if you saw his uh, podcast with Joe Rogan. It was fantastic. He's a smart guy. He's a really smart guy. And and at the point when he did that podcast, nobody knew who he was. That really launched him, you know, into the national um, consciousness. And it was just great. It was like three hours of, you know, Joe knows his shit. Joe asks good questions. And, you know, Andrew Yang just was ready. And he was so smooth, too. He was like... You could tell uh, that he had done his homework. He knew who Joe was. He knew Joe had two kids. He knew. So he would say things like, you know, as a, you know, I know you're, you've got two daughters and as a parent, you did it. And it, it wasn't schmarmy. It wasn't like, you know. Um, it wasn't schmoozing, schmoozing up, but he knew the platform. But he was respectful and he knew who he was talking to. And he, he. Yeah, you know, it's the worst when when guests will go on Rogan and they don't really know who he is or like me or yeah, like no, but they'll get off topic. Like, do you yeah. listen to Ed Snowden one where he was like, "I'm sorry, I'm getting off topic," and Rogan was like, "Uh, that's what we do here." Yeah, um, no, I uh, be a good name for a podcast. Off topic, off topic, tangentially speaking. Yeah, it's yeah. close. Yeah, do you are you in favor? And this might be too granular of of. Yang's proposal to give a thousand bucks to everyone. Like, why should Jeff Bezos get a thousand bucks as well as someone from a low-income family? Because his the point is that we live in a very wealthy society, and that should be shared with the people. And so, if you get into means testing, then you're going to get arguments about who deserves what, and then it's just another welfare program. So his point was. Everybody gets a thousand bucks, no strings attached. It's super easy. As long as you're over 18, you get that check every month. And that eliminates this whole like who gets it, who doesn't thing. And if Jeff Bezos wants to give his thousand bucks a month to a charitable cause or to his, you know, doorman or whatever, that's his business. Mm. So yeah, I'm in favor of that. And I'm in favor of anything that, um, illuminates what's going on financially because another thing that the you know the right wing does is they obscure the real numbers so you know anytime some democrat talks about you know bernie sanders wants to forgive student loans and what do they say? They're Where's like, the money for that? That's ridiculous. Where's yeah. the money? Yeah. How are you going to pay for that? How are you going to pay for that? Well, like, well, we did just approve a $750 billion defense budget. So maybe we can check that out. Yeah. Or in Trump's first year in office, he enacted tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy that more than match what Bernie Sanders would have to pay to forgive student loans. So we spend that money all the time. We just spend it on the rich people. But when it comes time to spend it on the other people they say there's not enough money they've been doing that for decades and people still fall for it so if somebody like yang comes along and says look a thousand bucks a month for every adult it's this much money and he goes through it all with rogan it's like okay that adds up to this much money you're going to save this much on those programs that we're going to eliminate because they're no longer necessary 
And what it and that money comes back. A lot of that money comes back because people spend it on in businesses and things in the U.S. So that comes back as tax money. So when you actually do the money, do the numbers, it's not really that much money. It's just going into the wrong hands. Yeah, it's going into the hands of people who actually need it, and they'll spend it. Jeff Bezos will take that thousand bucks and it'll just go into his Swiss bank account. But if you're a homeless guy, you're spending that money, right? Or even if you're a college student, if you're whatever, you're a yeah, dirtbag surfer. I, I wonder, though, like the, the problem with that is that you're going to get such b- big pushback from anyone who thinks that it smells like socialism that it so would never what? go through. Like, what, well, what about some kind of incentives program where you take some of that money and you say, all right, we're going to set up a program where we're going to give everyone a free cell phone. So you can you, now you're connected. All right, we're gonna get a program where we give you um, three years paid to learn a new skill. So for all those coal miners that are now out of business, now there's some time, kind of incentives program. You think coal miners are gonna learn to code? Dude? Well, they're gonna learn whatever they want to do. I mean, it's we want to not let people fall behind, right? But we also want to fall behind what? Well, we, you've been working at a coal mine. You're 55 years old. What are you gonna do now? You're going to go to night school and learn Russian so you can fucking <laughs> you know, work for the CIA. This is Joe and, start a Joe and Andrew Yang talked about this, how unrealistic it is to think that you're going to retrain coal miners to install solar panels mm. or something like it's, you know, sure. Some are going to want to do that. But the fact is that a lot of people uh, that's just not realistic. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying we live in this incredibly wealthy society where automation, you know, people used to work in the factories. They're not losing their jobs to Mexicans. They're losing their jobs to robots. And this is Andrew Yang's big point. It's AI. It's robots that are taking over automation. So productivity is going up. These companies are making more money than ever, but there are fewer employees to pay, right? So where's all that money going? It's all going to either shareholders or to the upper echelons of that company, right? So what he's saying is, why isn't some of that money going back to the people, the people who used to work in those factories? And it should be going to them, no strings attached, because they live in this incredibly productive society. I don't think there's anything wrong, and I think this gets back to the earlier conversation about the community. What's it mean to be American? I think if you did this, if you said everyone who has an American passport who's over 18 gets a thousand bucks a month, I think that creates a sense of common purpose, common identity, which then can be very helpful and very useful and meaningful for people, right? Um, By the way, this program of just giving money to citizens because they live in a very wealthy place This has been going on for a long time in a place called Alaska. Everybody in Alaska gets a check from the government every year if you're a resident of Alaska because of that oil. So when they started pumping that oil, they said, okay, we're going to share this money with the people of Alaska. So you're a resident, you're an adult, you get your share every every year. You know, what are people in Alaska doing? Are they all sitting around jerking off and not going to work? No. Of course not. That money helps. They're out wrestling polar bears is what they're, they're out doing. Trapping otters. They're out measuring pinto abalone populations. There you go. Shout out to our friend in Alaska. Yeah, my housemate's a pinto abalone scientist. You make very compelling points, Dr. Ryan. 
So I hope you'll support Sound, me in my campaign. Yeah, well done. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Uh, so why are we talking about politics? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, is this a seasonal? No, yeah, it's seasonal. <laughs> this, is, this is the spring flu. No, well, we started on Taibi and then we got going. Oh, oh it's Matt's fault. Yeah. Yeah. But we can uh, we can go somewhere else. Now. So what else is going on in life these days? Oh, in life. I was in Asia until recently. I was in Thailand. I was in Morocco. I don't know about Morocco. I've been to Morocco three times. Um, I was just thinking yesterday. That you, I don't know about Morocco. Well, I've was, been there three times. No, but I was going to say something, and I don't know if this is true <laughs> you, of Morocco. You don't know how you feel about Morocco. I don't like Morocco. I got to say it. I know you do, so I'm hesitant to... Like, we can talk about it. I have mixed feelings. Well, what I was going to say is something I noticed in Thailand. I spent a lot of time in Thailand. I love it. Um, I went into someone's house yesterday. I was up in Bolinas uh, with Lloyd Kahn. Great guy. Who you got to get him on your podcast. Well, tiny house guy, fantastic guy. Tiny house guy. Um, shelter publications. He also has been surfing uh, since the forties, literally nineteen forties. Oh yeah, and he's still doing it. He's amazing. He's just an amazing human. But anyway, I walked into his house and I was like, "Oh, let me I take off my shoes." And he said, "Oh no, leave your shoes on. You'll get your feet dirty if you take your shoes off." And I thought how different it is. In Thailand, you take your shoes off. When you go into a restaurant even or someone's house, here here bare feet are considered dirty, right. right? Like the sign in the store says no bare feet, whereas in Thailand, the, the sign would say no shoes. It's like in Japan, they, here we have streets, street names. In Japan, they have block names. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. There's a really good uh, TED Talk by a guy named Derek Sivers. It's like one of those five-minute TED Talks about exactly the concept that you're talking about, just questioning the premise of the thing that you grew up learning to do, and why is yours better than the other one? Right. And why are bare feet dirtier than the dog shit on the bottom of your shoe? That makes no sense. I think that's that's tied to the sort of anti- Sex, anti-body, anti-pleasure bias. That's why I have everyone stripped down nude when they get into my house. Yeah, exactly. It's a cleanliness thing. Well, and you have that that shower right at the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a bidet at my doorstep. <laughs> you do, do body checks? <laughs> yeah. Like a little... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but Morocco was... Uh, you know, it's they call it the hippies of the Arabic world. Yeah, so I heard that. On there your... is a lot of influence from Africa coming in. There's a lot of influence from Europe coming down. Uh, so there, it's it's a it's fairly cosmopolitan compared to a lot of other Arabic nations, um, and they're used to tourists and they really like Western values. Like you go in and they're like, oh. You're from America. You know, in 1777, we were the first country that recognized America as a country. Um, and they have all kinds of trade agreements. And, and so I liked that I felt like I could go to a culture that was different enough, but still feel, I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, it was still fairly progressive. Mm. Uh, the waves are great. The food is great. Um, I got to say, man, though, just the the whole veiling of women thing is really fucked up. And I came back feeling more proud to be an American than ever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been to Morocco three times 
Um, but the last time was uh, probably 20 years ago. It was with Stanley. He was invited to do a study of this, the genes, which are like the genies, the spirits of the desert. Wow. Very, it's a very strange adventure. He invited me along to do that. Um, the genies of the desert. Yeah. It turned out it was all just like guys trying to rip us off. You know, if you give me $1,000. I'll about, show you the genie. The genie will appear on my hand. And yeah, sure. Um, but I, I mean, my feeling in Morocco was at the time. Now, I've, I have a friend who was just there a couple of years ago, and he's been there a lot. And he said it's changed, that it's much less aggressive than it used to be. But when I was there, I felt like every time I walked out the door of wherever I was staying, I was immediately accosted by people trying to, men trying to sell me things. Where were you? Um, Casablanca, Marrakesh, yeah, uh, Zazud or something in the Sahara. I was down where you were on oh, in Agadir. 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 Agadir is cool. Essaouira yeah. is cool. I heard to stay Essaouira, to yeah. stay clear of Marrakesh because it's yeah. so touristy. And yeah. yeah, I'm sensitive to those kinds of places where you're just constantly bombarded by people trying to sell you shit. I but just I, felt like I had to fight. All the time. Mm. Like, I, I, got, I remember getting on a bus, and this was out in a village in the desert somewhere, and, you know, the seat number was on my ticket, and I sat down, and then some guy comes in and starts yelling at me, like, get out of my seat. And I'm like, no, it's my seat. And I show him the ticket. Like, ah! And then everyone else is yelling, and, ah, fuck you. Ah! And it's like, if if I didn't stand up for myself, I would, I'd be riding on the roof or something. You know, it's like, you have to fight there is for everything. Yeah, there is conflict. I don't speak a word of Arabic. Well, actually I speak like six now. Yeah. I heard but, on your thing. Yeah. 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 Assalamu alaikum. Yeah. Safi. It's all good. Safi. Yeah. But, uh, the way that the words are expressed in conversation, you'll be walking down the street and be like, oh shit, are these two guys about to brawl? Like, no, this is my brother. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. I love yeah. him. It's like a yeah. high energy level. Yeah. I, I, f- I was very, uh, it was very heartwarming to see the seriousness with which Moroccans take hospitality. Yeah. It was like, you, you're here in Morocco, you are our guest. We are here for you. What do you need? So I had a couple guys that were really cool. And throughout the whole trip, like I was there for almost a month and they were constantly checking in on me. Hey, where do you want to go to this next spot? I have a person for you to meet. How's your diarrhea? Exactly. How's your diarrhea? I have some pills for you. (laughs) Hey man, just checking in. That's good. He dead yet? Uh, So it, it was cool because in america we are so individualistic there's not really that culture of hospitality to the same degree surfing has its own subculture within each culture so wherever i travel Mm. i feel like it's um shaded a little bit by a global community of surfers there is there is something real about that yeah it's like i always envy musicians for that you know that you can go to some country where you don't speak a word of their language but if you can play guitar you'll be jamming you know and it's so fucking cool to have that bridge so i'm lucky in the way that most of the places that i go i'm connected with surfers who i are either friends of friends or directly friends one of the guys who i was staying with in morocco is a big wave surfer who comes over and he surfs mavericks every winter Mm. so he knew me from that from those experiences you know we're surfing the biggest waves of our lives together out on this little boat in 40 foot seas giving each other high fives like that's a condensed amount of time to get become very close right so by sharing those kinds of experiences i felt like 
I was I had a bit of a red carpet going in. But I think that even without that connection, there is just a, a seriousness of hospitality that Moroccans have. Um, yeah, I think that's common throughout the Arab world, yeah. that, that hospitality. Yeah, well, it's, it, uh, <clears throat> apparently the history of it is that there was... Um, you know, the, all, all the, what's the word people, nomadic tribes, you know, they're yeah. out in the desert and they have someone come in and visit. And it was, it was very serious to yeah. let them in and sure. let them stay for as long it's as life they want, death. life or death. So yeah. they ca- carried that culture through. Um, and yeah, I, I, I always try and find the best of a culture and kind of take it with me. Oh, that's something that, and and the food as well. I'm yeah. I'm getting into cooking, so they have some, dude. The tagine is tasty there. The tagine and um, came the back with a, clan. came back with a lot of scarves, a lot of scarves. You got some scarves. Yeah. yeah, big fan of the scarves. Yeah, uh, but yeah, the the uh, it's it's weird in Western culture now, bec- or in the, I would say in liberal circles because many people don't feel permission to criticize an oppressive religion. Right. Um, so it just goes on. And a lot of women, you know, in, in colleges here, you know, they're going to Vassar or UCSC and they wear a hajib um, for, you know, female empowerment. And they've never been to a culture where women will get killed if they take it off. That's not necessarily true in Morocco. Again, it, it is more liberal than other other uh, Islamic cultures, but man, some of the stories that we don't talk about, like just in 2019, there was a school in, uh, we're taking it way down right now, and then we'll, we'll bring it back up, I promise, but but in Iran, there was a school of girls that um, the school caught on fire, and the police and the fire department wouldn't let the girls go outside because they weren't properly veiled. 2019, man, fucking crazy. So, yeah, that was a problem I had in Morocco. I was single, uh, I guess the first two times I went and I found the women to be super attractive, uh, cause they're like strong and like, yeah, beautiful it, people it, it, I'm physically beautiful, but I really like their energy. Cause I think it's kind of like that same energy we were um, complaining about with the men, right? Yeah, that like high but they have a little intensity. bit more femininity. Right, yeah. but when it's coming from a woman, it's like, damn, you know, there's a lot of... <laughs> Stallion. Yeah, wow, she's got a lot going on. And I, I found that really attractive. And I had a... Actually, I had a Moroccan girlfriend in Spain. And so I sort of, you know, coming at the culture from that perspective, I really like the women. I like their assertiveness and their energy and, you know, the physically beautiful... Um, and so when I was in Morocco, I was with this buddy of mine and we were sort of, you know, there were a lot of women around and you know, we were chatting with the women and again and again, it was really easy to connect with the women. They really wanted to talk to us, but we'd start talking with these women and some guy would come over and just start yelling at them and like shoo them away. And it's like, hey, dude, like talk about a cock block. It's like right. a cultural cock block over and over. Cultural so I'm like, you know what? Block. I don't like you guys. Like, how about if you just back the fuck yeah, off? There's you know? one way to get Chris angry. <laughs> getting cock blocked. Like over and over. I had a funny uh, moment. I think you know the story because I did a the Check with Kyle episode. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I, I went to Morocco because uh, I was giving it. I gave a talk at this beach cleanup there. Um and there was this, they set up a stage on the beach. There's a few hundred Moroccans out in this crowd. And I, 
um, had no idea how kind of America centric my presence was going to be, but there was an American flag <laughs> yeah. behind me, yeah. a photo, fo- like a blown up photo of me surfing and an American flag right next to it. And they play me up on stage and they're like, now welcome American Kyle Tierman. And they play the fucking star spangled <laughs> banner as I walk up on stage alone oh, on stage. And That's there's so like uh, 300 Moroccans and they don't like play the song and then, turn it off so i get up on stage as it's starting they play the whole song and they play the whole song and i'm like do i do i put my hand over my heart <laughs> do i take a knee is this my moment like uh, i'm so with you colin <laughs> i'm so with you did the the version that you played on your podcast was that the version they played yeah there? that it was a woman singing right mm, i i well i went i got the audio from a separate song Oh, to okay. play. I'm, okay. I don't know if it was the same version. but So was, you had to stand there and listen to the whole song? Dude, it's like a three-minute yeah, song. It's a long-ass song. It's a long yeah. three minutes, man. It's like fucking... It's like bombing on stage doing yeah. stand-up. For three minutes feels like three hours, dude. Yeah, it's hard to start a talk after you've been standing there listening to this schmaltzy tune for three minutes. Yeah, yeah. very schmaltzy. Yeah. I was like, and like the hand was over the heart. Oh, you and did? Then you went for I the... Did, and no, but then I like put it down and the Moroccans weren't sure really sure if they were supposed to put their like put they were just like standing there yeah <laughs> bde big dick right. energy what's up yeah hey <laughs> we're at seven we're at war with seven nations right now That's y'all right. let's yeah. get it yeah but uh that was awkward but it was uh it was a cool experience to go over there and talk about an environmental issue like plastic pollution because this is an issue that almost every country in the world is facing now and we're the first generation that has to deal with it we're the first generation that like sees it on the landscapes and it's kind of percolating to the surface as far as um a real issue that people need to to discuss so um along with the surfing going and talking about an issue that is universal around the world right now uh felt like a good thing to do mm. and the, and the idea of civic engagement showing up and helping clean your beach I, that's like I, I've really come around on the idea of local civic engagement um, yeah. I mean for some people who listen to this podcast a lot know that my mom and my stepdad are very deep down the conspiracy world um, and they've exposed me to a lot of issues that I'm that I'm grateful for because I think that it helped flex my critical thinking muscle and got me interested in journalism. But the problem that I have with so many conspiracy theories is that they create apathy. You don't Mm. see a lot of people that are down those conspiracy theory rabbit holes that are also showing up for beach cleanups or voting for a local politician where they can actually make some change. Like local politics matter hugely. They matter for the future of your community and you and a few friends can get together and make a difference. And I think that what people just become paralyzed by these dark overarching issues like the the Illuminati and the global banking elite. Like, what the fuck are you going to do about it? Hmm. Nothing. You're, and there were studies done. Well, you can on, set up a local currency, actually, which is a really cool thing that, like, I think Ithaca has one. I've heard of these. Yeah. It, so I thought you were mentioned, talking about with Seattle, and I don't think they have one yet, but they talk about this. Not, I don't mean to interrupt yeah, yeah, yeah. you, no, but well, it, it's just a to, good example To of finish that. the point yeah. is, you, no matter how down you get or how, you know, conspiracy theories have also 
fucking spilled out into the mainstream. Now you have Trump and Alex Jones hanging out. But I think that it's disempowered a lot of citizens to get involved in an issue where they could actually move the needle. And I think that yeah. beach, beach cleanups are a good example. Is, are beach cleanups going to solve the issue of plastic pollution? Of course not. But they're going to flex your citizen muscle. They're right. going to get you out it onto a beach with other people and away from your phones, which arguably is more important than anything. Right. And it gives you a network of people that you can turn to when it's time to vote some prick out of office and get a better person in the county supervisor's office. Or, I mean, it's the first step in organizing, right? You Maybe the organization is around cleaning up the beach, but it ends up being useful. It's a tool that can be used for lots of other things. Do you ever uh, engage in local politics no because i don't live anywhere mm. so i don't know what my locale <laughs> like, would be like, my van is a uh, an authoritarian <laughs> dictatorship it's, and it's a, yeah, it's uh, a, i run it like an iron it's a fist sovereign <laughs> state in scarlett johansson uh yeah no i don't um and and in fact i'm sort of on the opposite end of that because I lived so long in Spain where I am not a citizen, mm. right? I had legal residence, but I was never, I never voted. Were you allowed to? Um, not for most things. There were some local, like city kind of elections where I would have been, um, but I wasn't informed enough. And I, you know, I don't think I ever voted in Spain. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I may, that may change. I, as you know, I bought some land and I may be building a house at some point and, you know, live my uh, doddering old age in a place. A and doddering? If, a doddering? Doddering. Doddering. That's good. Doddering old man is like someone who's like, it's almost like a toddler. I think it's the old toddler where you're sort of like, just, just barely on your feet. <laughs> I think that's what it so means. So could you call someone a daughterer to insult them? No, I think daughtering is, It's. Mm. I don't know about a daughterer. Yeah. That sounds like a adulterer. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, I go back and forth around my engagement with politics, and I sometimes wonder if my whole activism thing is just a some kind of desperate need to feel like my life has meaning. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, people find meaning in different places. I think a lot of people have kids so they can feel that they have meaning in their lives. You know, people do different things. And I think it's, that's a real need and it's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and I think feeling engaged in your community and, and trying to, clean it up, whether that be the beach or the politics or, you know, whatever. I think that's an excellent source of meaning because it creates community. It, you invite other people to join you. I think that's a really good way of scratching that itch. And it's a real itch. You're going to scratch it one way or another. Most people are scratching it by just trying to make as much bank as they can. They think that's meaningful. And of course, it doesn't work. So then they spend that money on therapists and Medical bills, trying to fix <laughs> well, their really back. Really, you could just go down and clean your beach. Yeah, I, I think that I'm less of an ad. I mean, I, I, there are certain issues where I feel fairly, you know, grounded in where I sit on them. You know, plastic being one of them. I feel fairly well educated about it. I've been involved in it for a while, but I'm more interested in just alert, trying to get to the bottom of 
the issue and learning about it. And I've kind of psychoanalyzed. I think that it's the, the result of growing up with parents that were super into conspiracies and just trying to figure out what base reality is, was really hard for me growing up. And a lot of my interest in whether it be the prison system or plastic pollution is just trying to figure out like, where's this all coming from? How, yeah. and, and I think that a lot of it stems back to what you were talking about at the beginning, which is this relationship between politicians, lobbying groups, corporations, and it's not necessarily evil people, it's institutions, but we're taught yeah. to hate, we're taught to hate people, not institutions. Well, we're, yeah, we're, we're, it's a big scam. We're taught to believe that institutions are not living things, so we can't hate them. You know, I, I tell the story all the time of how, you know, I'll I'll say something about Exxon being an evil. I mean, evil is a weird word because it applies to people, right? But if evil is something that's working against the the well being of human beings, then Exxon's a pretty evil fucking ent- entity. Certainly sociopathic. Right. Yeah, I mean, corporations are designed to be sociopathic, right? Because they don't have the interests of human beings at, in, in consideration. It doesn't matter. They're about profit. And if they can dump their shit in the ocean and get away with it, they will. Externalize those costs, Exactly. Baby. And if any government agency tries to come in and regulate that, and it's cheaper to attack that agency than it is to clean up the, the their act, then they'll attack the agency. And that's just... You know, there's nothing evil about that. That's yeah. just the way it works. But those stories are so hard to tell. And that's why I'm, I have such a love affair with someone like Matt Taibbi, because he can talk about the financial sector and make it sound interesting. I mean, yeah. that's this is a, a problem that you and I ran into, even with the MOFAs. How do you humanize these issues enough to get people to laugh at it? You know, the, learning about a lobbying group is not that fun. It's certainly not as sexy as learning about you know, Trump's sex life. And one, you know, one th- improvement that we did to the show from year one to year two was we allowed the comedians to create their own names. Drilly D. Drilliams. I'm the right. I'm the executive motivational archi- architect yeah. here at ExxonMobil. And that was yeah. from Moshe Kasher and Natasha Legero on their own going up the first year and saying, hi, we're the sibling heirs of J.P. Morgan Chase. I'm Jonathan Chase. And I'm Jacqueline Onassis DeVere's right. Coors Light Chase. <laughs> and the fucking introduction of people just yeah. naming their identity at the beginning got the biggest laughs throughout the whole show this this whole year. Right. Like, it, for sure, it added a huge component to it because we're taught to identify with people. Mm, yeah, good point. So it's, yeah. 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 That's well, what I, that's I, what I do here. I make good points. Yeah. Well, I was, I, I, the point I was, was uh, we're taught to, we're taught to hate people, not institutions. I right. think you were playing off that. Yeah. Well, I was getting into the thing that it's not, it's really hard to think about this stuff because as you say, we're, we're taught to think of institutions as being made of and by people. And so, you know, when you talk about, hey, you know, Exxon is fucking the world, people are going to say, yeah, come on, like good people work at Exxon, you know? And I always get into this thing where it's like, yeah, it's true. Good people work at Exxon. Good people work in the U.S. military. There are good people who are flying jets that are dropping cluster bombs on weddings in Yemen right now, right? I'm not blaming that pilot. 
But that pilot is part of a system that doesn't give a fuck about those people in Yemen. That pilot is taught to fly a plane and he's taught not to think about what he's doing in terms of who's on the other end of that bomb, who's down on the ground receiving that fucking shrapnel in their back. He's taught not to think about that. And when when the pilot says, hey, yeah, I didn't think about it because I was trained not to, I'm not blaming him, but there's this larger system in place. Um, and so when people say, yeah, good people work for Exxon, I say, you're right. But if that good, if if those good people looked at this thing and said, I can't do this anymore, this sucks, they would be replaced immediately, right? Even if that person's the CEO or on the board of directors, they'll be replaced. So people don't, like Exxon, when we say that corporations are made of people and it's just a collection of human decisions, I think that's underestimating the complexity of the issue. They're subsumed by something larger. Yeah, we work for companies. Companies don't work for us. Did, do you remember going and seeing? Uh, we're gonna lighten this up, man. We're getting dark. Fuck! <laughs> it's a bright, sunny day in Santa Cruz, California. We just had some veggie breakfast burritos with avocados. Life's okay, Chris. Yeah, but I was I, missing the bacon. I gotta for say, real? oh yeah, I'm like, where's they, the bacon? They in put this too damn much thing. bacon in the breakfast burrito. It kind of overwhelms the other flavors. So oh. I decided to take it out. And we fed you wild meat last night. So I was just making sure that your cholesterol wasn't going to be too high with these veggie breakfast burritos. I was taking the whole thing into, into account. That's don't great. worry about that's it. I got great. you. So I got you, you my, covered. Like, coach, are you my personal trainer? I got now? you covered. Yeah, it's okay. That's great. Yeah. At the crack of 9 a.m., I'll be waking you up. <laughs> um, the point I was going to make, your brilliant friend, Jake Johansson, uh-huh. I don't I don't want to give away too much, but like he has this joke that we saw. We went out and saw him where he's talking about a needing to prove, that, you know, when, when you're going in to like sign in for something and it says, make sure that <laughs> yeah. you're not a robot. Not a, not a robot, like, please right. click the, the photos with cars in it. He's yeah. like... We're called. We're we're proving to the robots that we're not robots. <laughs> I know it's fantastic. A fucking brilliant yeah, one, man. Yeah. He's good. He's really good. He's he is really good, man. As I've yeah. become more and more um, involved with comedy, I, like to be able to see him go up for an hour straight and hold that and not have any dips, dude. That's he's, hard. He's such a pro. And I said this to him last time when I saw him do the uh, the improv. He does a, a annual show there right after Thanksgiving. I think I went to that one. Yeah, that show. Yeah. And that was where we so met. Good. That was where we met Leo Flowers. Oh, well, that was last year. Yeah, that was two years ago. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. didn't go to the one this year. Yeah. Oh, he's so good. But it's like, yeah, to see that, my feeling was like, I can't believe. I know someone who can do that. Right. You know what I mean? It was like, I don't know, it's, it must be like knowing some someone who's in the Cirque du Soleil and can like do a triple flip right in the living room, you know? Or a, we were talking last night about magicians, like a really good magician. Like to be able to stand up in a room, three, 400 people and hold their attention and control that room for an hour, like are you kidding me? That's amazing. What a skill. Mm. And he's so good. You're right. He's, I mean, he's you know, sharp. We well, hang out with a lot of comedians and they're all good. They're all brilliant. They're all really interesting people. But there's sometimes when you see someone and it's just like that, that's not just a funny guy. That's someone who's harnessing an energy. Yeah. 
and is just it's a combination it's of next level harness shit. harnessing the energy and being a tack sharp writer yeah because the words that and he the uses memory. in the way that like, he sets it up. How do you remember an hour's worth of material? <laughs> you know? Like, I could, I can't, like, remember a poem of five lines. And, yeah. you know, like, Jesus, Well, you do, amazing. it's, I think that it's similar to a writer writing a book. Like, oh, the book seems so big, but it's really just one chapter after the next. It's six, ten minute Yeah, but acts. dude, I've written two books. Ask me to recite them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Forget about I can't tell you, like, the names of the first three chapters. Honestly, I couldn't tell you what the names of the chapters Your are. Your memory works so weird, dude. <laughs> you, you will, like, reintroduce me to people Ten, ten times. <laughs> oh, this is guy. Anya, have you met Kyle? I'm like, yeah, dude. We went on a trip. We went on a trip together. Yeah, yeah. But your ability to recall stories is unparalleled. Mm, like yeah. you, narrative. there's a situation. Yeah, you see the world and your life in narrative, yeah. and you're able to pull these stories that all have good. You know, there's a good point of conflict, and then there's a resolution, and there's right. a message, and you have more of those than pretty much anyone I've ever met. Yeah. Yeah, I guess your dad and I were talking about that. You know, this was it your dad? Or no, it was it was with Lloyd Kahn, who's 85. We were talking about memory and he he agrees with me that you get older and it's just like there's just too much to remember. And so you either consciously or unconsciously start throwing shit overboard cuz there's just not enough room on the boat, you know? So what am I going to hold on to? I'm going to hold on to stories. If you've met so-and-so, I don't really give a shit, yeah. you know? Like, okay, oh, you've already met? Great. Like, am I embarrassed? Well, you, well, no. you, would, you would remember if there was a story associated between us two. Maybe, maybe I would, but often I'll tell a story and I'll be like, oh, one time the, and the person I'm talking to is like, yeah, I was there. Remember? Like, I'm the yeah. one who said that. And, you know, so it's, I, uh, the thing about people having met each other, I feel like that's so inconsequential that I've, and also I have a lot of people and I've always, this is before I became semi-famous, I've always had people in my life from- Small s. Yeah. <laughs> from, from very different areas. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm the point of contact. So I'd have a party and there would be like surgeons and tattoo artists and a homeless dude and like people who have no contact with each other other than through me. So that's why I never know if people have met each other because I sort of assume I know you from this other part of my life. You know, it's like, one of the best things too, being a conduit for different people who are in different worlds and it's, who are all cool. Well, yeah, who yeah. are all cool yeah. and they're all good. Like, I fun, love that. Fundamentally good people. Like, if you're a fundamentally good person and you have a sense of humor, that is more important to me than what you do. Right. Way more. And you, the more I've podcasted, I think the better judge of character I've I've gained, the better I've been able to very quickly decide. Oh, I like this person or eh, that's a weird energy. Mm. Um, but one of my favorite things about being a conduit is that there's two, two people who are in different worlds. One person may have solved a problem that the other person is facing mm. and no one in the other person's industry, let's say like surfing, for example, like no one in the surf industry has solved that problem, but maybe someone in the tattoo industry 
has solved that problem in their own right. world. So you right. don't even need to be the person that's coming up with all these new ideas. You just need to connect two separate novel ideas. Yeah. And that can create a ton of value. Have you ever, have we talked about a, uh, an essay by Malcolm Gladwell called, I think it's called like Five Degrees of Lois Weisberg or something like that? No. It's a great, it was a column or a piece he did in the New Yorker and it's on his website. So if anyone wants to read this, just go to malcolmgladwell.com and look for Five Degrees of Lois, I forget what, some Jewish name, but she was, she's this woman in Chicago who was this hub who did this thing you're talking about where she would have these salons like every couple of weeks or something. And she would invite people that she had this uncanny sense that you two with what you know, the world you're in and the world this person's in, the two of you are going to combine and some, something amazing is going to happen. And so she would like, I can't remember the exact examples, but it was like she introduced someone who financed the invention of something. So the inventor and the rich guy came to her party, or it was, you know, someone who wrote lyrics and someone who wrote music, and they ended up writing all these hit songs together, stuff like that, you know? And that's what, and no one's ever heard of her, but if you look at the things that happened because of her, we've all heard of a bunch oh, of those. It's so cool. It's a really, and it's all about that. It's all about, how, as you said, like problems have been solved in one world, but because most people are specialists, they don't know what's going on in other worlds. They only know their world. And what's so beautiful about being the conduit is that you can just remove yourself. You create the connection and then you're gone. Right. You, you're, you become obsolete. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder, I've... I mean, this t this ties into a, a very powerful LSD trip that I had one time in Big Sur, where I realized that, like, to be able to live a good life, I didn't need to be the center of everything all the time, or like put myself out there. And it was manifesting when I was younger in kind of weird ways of like wanting to be on camera and wanting to be like the guy who took all the credit. And I I remember looking out over the ocean and seeing this like fractal equation. And how you could never possibly measure the impact of one person. So to just be a conduit and then remove yourself is much more powerful than trying to be the center of everything all the time. That was the, the insight that I had from LSD. But it made me think also of uh, it, it, how much podcasting as a medium is a conduit for other people because you've mm. connected people that you don't know about. Right. Like the, if you want to, here's a little rant coming for you. I would listen to Joe Rogan's podcast. I heard you on Joe Rogan's podcast. I reached out to you. We became friends. We did started the Motherfucker Awards together. You introduced me to Abby Martin. Abby Martin introduced me to Matt Taibbi. You uh, Simon listened to your podcast. Simon then, you know, I introduced Simon to some people at Burning Man. But Simon found his girlfriend from Burning Man, who I grew up with. And it's like the you could never possibly measure that. Right. And it's kind of fun to just do as a little, you know, some kind of mental masturbation. But now more than ever, people are conduits and they're able yeah. to swim into these different worlds and gather huge, huge amounts of value from it, man. I was looking at, uh, and this is not self-congratulatory. This is just following up what you're saying. I was looking at the, there's a Reddit 
um, subreddit of Tangentially Speaking. I was looking at it the other day, and there was a guy who's like, hey, uh, where where is everyone listening from? I'm in Pakistan, and I first heard Chris on Rogan's podcast when I was studying in Boston, and now I'm in Karachi. And so there's this list of people all over the world listening, you know, like, oh, I'm in, you know, Australia, and I'm here. And then there's this one guy who's like, hey, actually, I'm in Pakistan right now. Where You're in Karachi? Like, we might be going down there. And the guy's like, yeah, come on down. I'll DM you my phone number. And he's like, those two, they're going to have dinner together. Who knows what's going to come from that, you know? Like, I fucking love it's that. It's the best. It's it, so it great. It is the best. And um, as you said, like, I first of all, remove yourself. I'm not even there, yeah. right? Um, but the other thing that, that I was just thinking is... You were talking about this beach cleanup and you and you're talking about, you know, putting people, connecting people and then removing yourself. I think about that a lot. I just turned 58, right? I it's not that I'm going to remove myself, it's that I'm going to be removed, yeah. <laughs> you know. And so you, you that's the keep... nature of life. Right. So what you leave behind largely is the people you've introduced to each other. Right? And and the stuff that's you. That's the echoes of you. People who know each other because they met through you. That's fucking beautiful. That's that's the sweetest life after death I can imagine. When I was in Morocco on this trip, uh, I I said, hey, I want to go to a little spot called Essaouira. It's a great little Medina. I did some writing there for a few days. And while I was there, a friend of mine said, you should meet this historian who will take you around on this tour this is uh by the way sorry to interrupt you but anyone who's listening to this who hasn't listened to that chicken with kyle episode check with kyle do it it's so good it really is i appreciate that from one storyteller so much work into no but i just yammer on and on that was like you really you spent a lot of time putting that together that's a that's like a multimedia kind of presentation, you know, with your snippets of the conversations. You don't just say, and I met this chick and she told me I'm going to get sick and it's going to, you have her saying that and laughing at you. Well, dude, it creates it a kind so of- so well done. Thanks, man. It creates a kind of warmth, that kind of on the ground journalism. And it's so easy. You just record some stuff with your phone, go out to a bar. Hey, where's the cool spot to eat around here? Oh, you definitely don't want to eat in Takazoo. You'll get sick and you'll get the shits. And then you turn that into a story. But, uh, I interrupted you. No, part of the story was that, uh, and and if you listen to it, you also get my star spangled banner, awkward (laughs) moment. Uh, (laughs) but I was introduced to this historian in Ahmed Jali. So smart, so thoughtful, such a deep perspective. He's lived in Essaouira his whole life. He gave me this tour around the Medina. It was If you ever go to Essaouira, Morocco, go to the episode that I did with Ahmed, and he put his email there, and he'll give you a tour around the Medina. Mm. But it's it has this really fascinating history of like Jimi Hendrix going there in the 70s and falling in love with it. And he, he learned a ton, did an interview with him, included him in the check with Kyle episode. But at the end of our interview, I said, Oh wow, you seem like a really well-traveled guy. Um, have, you know, do you have any places that you've been there? Your favorite place? He's like, well, I've never actually been outside of Morocco, but I travel a lot in my mind and I'd love to go to, you know, see the jazz in America. I'd love to go to Egypt to see the pyramids. pyramids. I'd love to go to North Africa to listen to the music. He was so specific about his desires. 
And at the end of the show, spoiler alert, I say, hey, if anyone out there has like points on an airline or wants to help donate to get this guy on his first trip, like let's make it happen. And I did not think that people were going to do it. Dude, we're sending this guy on his first trip abroad because I started getting all of these emails from people that listen to my podcast and they're like, fuck yeah, I want to help send this guy on his first trip. He seems so thoughtful. So actually today I'm going to call Ahmed and and we're going to talk about where we're going to send him on his trip. That's fantastic. Are you going to record it? I'm going to get, so I got listeners who are donating to send in voice memos directly to Ahmed uh, and say, hey, Ahmed, you know, I'm Marie from, you know, uh, Bisbee, Arizona, and, uh, you know, I'm the one donating the points or blah, blah. So there will be direct messages to him. And then I'm going to get him when he's on the trip to record some voice memos and have it be this little story that we did as a community. Mm. That's, that's one, another thing about podcasting. That's just, I love it so much because it's not all about you. Mm -hmm. It's, there's a dance going on where you're kind of shining the spotlight on someone else. And man, I mean, you, you've probably have more stories than I do about this, but like, I remember having a, um, uh, coast guard rescue swimmer on my show. And then I had someone say that they joined the coast guard because they listened to that episode. Hmm. Man, how is that life shifted and how just what a persuasive medium, unfiltered, honest conversation can be. Who would have thought? Yeah. Well, you're talking about meaning earlier in the search for meaning. I, I, you know, I often cite this statistic that the number one uh, source of meaning is a good poop in the morning. That's I know, meaningful. I yeah. Um, no, the number one predictor of uh, life satisfaction is whether or not you feel embedded in a community of people who love you. Right. Like that you're part of a group of people who take care of each other. The number one degree of, of satisfaction, of life satisfaction. It's also the number one factor in longevity. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so it matters more for your health than whether you smoke, how much exercise you do, what you eat, all the stuff that we're told to obsess over matters less on a statistical level than do you feel that you are part of a community that, cares about you. Right. And so I feel like with podcasting, what's interesting is that there are so many people who feel disconnected from their families, disconnected from their local community because they live in some town where people don't think the way they think. They don't believe what they believe. So one of the good things about the modern world is that we're it's so easy and cheap for us to put this out and people to listen if they want to. And then if they feel resonant they can go online, they can go to your forum on your 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 website, or they can go to the Reddit page on my thing or whatever, and they find each other. And so there's these communities sort of naturally crystallize. Yeah. You know, it's the opposite of what mainstream media is doing to our culture to, fragmenting. to fragment and atomize and tribalize people and tell them stories that makes them that make them simplify their thinking. The, the great part about this platform is we have as long as we want to talk about these issues, so it it helps strengthen the nuance muscle. So you should call this episode Love, Inc. Love, Inc.? Not Hate, Inc. I like that. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> right? Because yeah. that's kind of what we're trying to do is, I mean, I have people on the podcast who I think 
you know, who hold opposing, like I have a lot of um, military vets on the podcast, right? Obviously, I'm anti-military pretty strongly, but I like these guys. They're good guys, you know? They're they're beautiful people, and they're dealing with, they're suffering, uh, you know, generally because when they got into the military, they were too young to know what the fuck they were doing, and then they figure it out, and then it's too late to get out, and now they're dealing with the repercussions. I've got no hostility toward those people. I fucking feel it. I, I you know, I have a lot of compassion. So, and I think it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, yeah, what I'm trying to do on my podcast, and I think you as well, is fucking generate some love, you know? Yeah. On a very fundamental level. Yeah. My super hippy dipty exercise that I do sometimes is I'll sit down uh, for a podcast. Or I, you can do this in any part of your day, but you just think in your mind, I love you. And it's a profoundly powerful and simple, energetic, you know, slingshot out into the world. And it, feels good Mm. and all of a sudden you're thinking about what you have in common with this person not what separates you and people pick up on that energy and i think that most people would rather feel that love than that hate Uh, but sometimes you got to be first Mm. yeah yeah and that's that's privilege when you've got enough sort of your center of gravity is low enough that you can extend yourself and not worry that you're going to fall over or you're, you know, I think people are running on empty as far as love and gratitude goes. People are getting back to what we said earlier. People are afraid. People are taught to be afraid, right? Because people who are afraid are much easier to manipulate. So when you start, it's a very subversive thing to let go of that fear. And I think one of the most beautiful things you can do for another person is help them let go of the fear, right? Which may be extending that no strings attached love is a good a good way to start. Change the world. Cook good food for other people. Mm, best place to store extra food is in your friend's stomach. Oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's beet tacos. Then it's uh, out the window. <laughs> We, we got to stop doing all these inside jokes on yeah. our podcasts. It's I, I Kyle sw- makes a lot of beet tacos. I swooned people. Chris with my beet tacos. Yeah, he made scared me every time I saw my purple shit the next day. Yeah, that's that's my favorite thing. It's a little <laughs> surprise. Everyone thinks of me when they poop the next morning. <laughs> Sit on the toilet people. and think of how much I love Kyle. Yeah, yeah that's my morning on the squatty potty. You should get going. Yeah. It's about noon. Got to hit the road. Yeah. What's next for you, man? Headed to Baja. Going to be in LA for a few days, maybe record a few podcasts, see my mom, my sister, some friends, and then uh, roll down to Baja with uh, Scarlett Johansson for a little while. Nice, man. Well, uh, you're a gentleman and a scholar, and I always enjoy talking with you. And uh, that was great, man. <laughs> <laughs> you were looking I, I at was your looking notes. at yeah, oh yeah I had some notes I had um, oh, this is something I we had, haven't covered uh, I have a joke I'm working on about uh, about infidelity mm. uh, and like if and I wanted to ask you cr- the real infidelity rates because like the, mm. the joke and it's not even it's not very good but working out is that like if you had a stop sign let's say it was like one in three if there was a stop sign 
that one in three people were getting tickets at, sooner or later someone's going to come in and be like, maybe this should be a roundabout. Uh, anyway, it's I'm still working it out, but I right. need to, I'm trying to be accurate. Yeah, well, the statistics are notoriously unreliable, right? Because... Have you experienced infidelity? The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, who's first of all, who's going to say yes if, you know, like who's asking? Right. Is it anonymous or not? Right. <laughs> There's a smart person who's like, this is an inside job. Right. Like, this is my husband's <laughs> hacked into my yeah, email Yeah, we, we have institutions that will create fake colleges <laughs> so that you'll enroll <laughs> so that we can deport you. Yeah. I'm not, Dude, I'm not putting this down. That shit happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, but I think it's something like sixty uh, percent of married men and forty percent of married women uh, have admitted, you know, to at least one act of infidelity. But also, how do you define infidelity? Is it thinking about someone else when you masturbate? Some people say that's infidelity. You know, is it looking at porn? Is that infidelity? Some only pe- if they some talk. Only say if yes. they talk back. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I yeah. think it would have, wouldn't it have been the greatest moment in American political history if Bill would have gotten caught and Hillary would have been like, "Yeah, we have an open relationship. I'm cool with it." Oh, dude, the the people didn't give a shit. That was one of those things that was all ginned up into this big controversy. But Clinton's approval numbers went up, really, when he was impeached. Yeah, because people were just like, "Ah, oh, who gives a fuck? Stop it with this," you know. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, oh, no, back I agree. When you, back when you could impeach people for lying. <laughs> Just good, a lie. good old days. Just a blowjob. Ah, I look back with those days, those days with nostalgia. Days of innocence. Book recommendation for everyone, Hate Inc. Do you have any any book recommendations? Uh, Atlas of a Lost World, I, I've been reading. Uh, Childs, I forget his, Greg Childs, I think. He's a really interesting guy. He, he retraces ancient uh, migration pathways from like the first people to come into the Americas over the Bering Strait, for example. And he writes, so it's sort of like it's him with his kids and a camping trip with kayaks, but it's also retracing how the first people came into that part of North America and imagining what it was like then and what the animals were then and where the glaciers were and the sort of ancient landscapes. It's very interesting. Oh, I've got one uh, that, eh, it's okay. It's, what's it called? Civilized, civil, civil, uh, yeah. I can't think of it. Civilized, civilized to, to something. To, to breath. Ah, civilized to breath. Someone check it out. Check it out. You'll type in Dr. Christopher Ryan, Civilized to Breath. Yeah. It's a very good book. Congratulations on Thank finishing you. it. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> a long time but, coming. But I called you up. I was like, how's the book going? You're like, it's gone. Oh, I finished it. Did I? Yeah. Uh, You're like, it's it's finished. It's a finished book. It's out in. there. I'm it's sent it in. I'm going to Baja, Don't talk baby. about it anymore. Going to Baja, bitches. <laughs> Dr. Christopher Ryan, everyone check out Tangentially Speaking. It's the best podcast in the world. We out. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Leaving by West of Mall Bay, and I will link to their band page in the show notes below. This show is made possible by Santa Cruz Medicinals. You can head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10, and get 10% off 
all supplements, all CBD. They make potent good shit that I use every single day. I use their tincture at night. It's helping me sleep. It helps me with inflammation. And you can get 10% off by typing the code name KYLE10 at checkout, scmedicinals.com. Thank you also to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. Through these tough times, I rely on people like you. It's the $5 donations, $10 donations. It's, you know, I say it often, but it's the equivalent of a cup of coffee. If you get value out of this show, um, I don't make much money doing this. um, And if you dig it, please support it. If you can't, I totally understand. Just keep listening. Uh, Maybe give it a rating on iTunes. Those kinds of ratings matter immensely, especially when I'm trying to reach out to bigger guests. So you can just do that for 30 seconds, and it's a huge help. But more importantly than everything, than any of that, just be good to yourself through these days. A lot of self-care. Look at the news enough to stay informed, but not enough for it to become compulsive. Um, be nice to yourself, get plenty of sleep, and tell yourself and others, I love you. Now